is how everyone talked in the 1950s. <laughs> you know. All right. So one thing we didn't touch on in our first part was after Harley had won the NWA title once, he had a run-in with Jackie Moonlighter's Smokey and the Bandit fucking Gleason. And all of what you are about to hear is word for word from the Lakeland Ledger in Florida gossip column. I don't know if Jackie Gleason came out to the Honeymooners theme song, but I'm pretty fucking sure I'd bet money he did. So here we go. Ba 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 ba. Jackie! Ba 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 Thank you! Thank you! Thank you! Jackie is met with adoration and the crowd going wild, but from the back, a silhouetted afro appears and makes his way to the ring, grabs the mic. It's Harley fucking race. You say he's a big man. To me, Jackie Gleason means no more than any of you bums sitting here in the audience. He says he's just a big, fat bum. Hey, what did you call me? Oh, you heard me. I said you're just a big, fat bum. Uh, You're the only bomb here. Oh, shit. So, for everyone that doesn't know, Jackie punches Harley in the stomach, and then according to Harley, shoot punches him in the side of the fucking head that was not rehearsed. Harley tries to attack Gleason, but is held back by wrestlers. The skirmish ensues, and then Gordon Soley chimes in. I've always admired Mr. Gleason as one of our greatest entertainers and gentlemen, and after witnessing what he did here tonight, I also admire him for his guts, and hold him in deep respect. I'll repeat what I said before to you people in Miami Beach, and mostly to you, Gleason, that you're a fat bum, and you better not walk behind me. And Jackie Gleason was escorted off by cops because he's a big old pussy. And that was basically it. That is, uh, when, when Harley Race told this story, I was like, yeah, it's bullshit. And I found the actual newspaper article. And except for Jackie saying thank you, thank you at the beginning, that's all word-for-word quotes from a fucking newspaper of Harley Race getting in a possibly shoot fight with Jackie fucking Gleason. I'll tell you what, Alice, I shoot-punched Harley Race right in the face and lived to see daylight. I told that motherfucker <laughs> I would punch him straight to the moon. <laughs> Well, this is not community theater. This is Tim Bell Pod, where we're here to talk about Harley Race Part 2. I'm Nick Alexander. Happy late Thanksgiving. This episode is coming out after Thanksgiving. We know that because yeah, that's yeah, when we're recording it. Yeah, yeah, I had good Thanksgiving dinners. I'm joined, as always, in the Manning Cave by the personification of a Thanksgiving turkey, Micah Loving. I don't even know what the fuck I that means. I don't even know what that means either. <laughs> oh, I got it. It was great. That was a good one. <laughs> that's, one that's one of the best ones you've done. Oh, God. <laughs> and, of course, what would an episode of Tim Bell Pod be without the Iowa Tola of Rock and Rolla, the Man Scout Jake Manning? I like that one. That that's a good, good. one. That, <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. I feel like that buildup, though, you should have just been like, and Jake Manning. I mean, not, <laughs> not, not as good as the excellence of Tensecution. Uh <laughs> which is probably now available at howdothisgetbook.com uh, <laughs> slash merch. Seeing as it is after Thanksgiving, you are 100% correct. Before we dive back into Harley Race's story, I wanted to take a second and talk about Harley's legacy because he's a weird one. 
Because to the fans who grew up watching him and the wrestlers who came up with him, Harley is one of, if not the greatest of all time. But there's this generation before even I was born that mostly knows Harley as his king in the run, you know, in WWF or maybe as a manager and then move on to the new generation and the Attitude Era. Like Harley was never mentioned. So we live in this weird paradox where one of the best wrestlers ever is somehow underrated, if not forgotten, by a generation of wrestling fans. Why did you make this happen, Micah? Because I'm a dick? Well, (laughs) I I will chime in and say this. The perception of him is probably going to change, especially with the newer fans, with with his passing. I mean, they talk about it on ESPN, like on the the bottom ticker, as if it was... Hmm. Ozzy Smith passing away, or somebody. I don't know why Ozzy yeah, Smith was whoa. the first thing that popped in my head. Ozzy Smith? I miss me some Ozzy Smith. Uh, I, I mean, but, but like, or like Michael Jordan or, or John Elway, like somebody of, of that level, like just on the bottom ticker of, of somebody. Charles like, Oakley, since we're going to Ozzy well, Smith. Maybe let's go with somebody who wasn't around during my child, like a Bart Starr. Like, there you go. Uh, maybe that might be a better reference. Or Roger Staubach. Uh, yeah, somebody, somebody of that level. Like Moses was, Malone. still still very much of my generation but like someone of that ilk passing away that's how much respect the sports world and it's much like i learned more about johnny cash and prince and david bowie after they passed away like i I wouldn't say that i was big fans of them while they were alive but now that they've all passed and there's been this resurgence of like who this artist was and documentaries and uh, you know his music being a little bit more prevalent because people of a generation before me miss him so much i i'd like to think that there are wrestling fans that are doing that with their kids be like oh the race pass well, he was so awesome yeah. and showing it to the younger generation so i i would like to think that in the way that i have gone back and appreciated johnny cash prince and bowie after they passed that i think wrestling fans today will go back and look at harley race and appreciate what he did so so i think that the younger generation is slowly going to know that. But yes, but before his passing, I, I think a lot of people just didn't know where to place him. I, I just kind of knew him from, he was the guy that Flair beat at Starcade. Yeah, and, that's, and it's very interesting that we're doing this after Thanksgiving, considering the connection of Starcade and Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, no, and all shit, that stuff. So it's most, most, well, it's the starting thing that popped in my head. <laughs> and we're really going to be talking about Harley coming down off the mountain. But this is something Harley knew was coming. And, and as we discussed in part one, talking about how he was making people in all these territories so he could have an opponent to wrestle when he came back or somebody who was a bigger deal that can make another opponent in that territory so you can make even more money in that territory. This is now the downward climb uh, of a wrestler that is making people throughout their career. And this is what you do. You reach the heights, you, you, you get to the, the mountaintop, and then you, you put over people on your way down. That's just how wrestling works. And we're going to be getting into the discussion of if Harley setting up the next several years of wrestling or doing his best to possibly, you know, do it himself in ring and out of the ring himself. I think also a big part, because I want to get this in, is when it ever comes up, I think even in our Rick Rude episode when I did, like, the tournament matchup, and Har- I put Harley Race in the matchup, and Jake was fucking adamant as shit. Harley Race won. Harley Race beat everybody. Harley did it. And you, the thing that is synonymous with respect with Harley is also his toughness and how much of a brute and how much he could take and just deep diving into some of this stuff i'm just gonna rattle off some stories that might have been urban legend but they're good shit marty Janetti's story about a ketchup bottle where dude's giving harley a bunch of shit 
saying, oh, they just used fake blood. Harley smashes it over his head and said, now you're a pro wrestler. Look that <laughs> one up. Harley apparently tried to, somebody tried to citizens arrest Harley for uh, speeding. He actually had a blue light. Harley punched him out and drove off. Um, <laughs> Harley apparently uh, knocked out a Georgia State patrolman for illegally searching his car. At the chestnut tree, he knocked out three guys. After getting stabbed when they were trying to harass a woman, um, Harley headbutt knocked out the leader of a biker gang in the middle of the fucking ring after a show when the biker thought he was hot shit, but he wasn't Harley top shit. Um, he apparently knocked out all three of the drunken freebirds, but that's also been attributed to Flair, so I don't know about that shit. And there's a promo, I couldn't find it, where Harley breaks a fucking brick over his forearm, which, you know, most people don't know watching it, but, you know, he's got the steel plate in there. And then Harley beats the brick over his head. I tried to find this promo, couldn't find it, but... Just everything that I read is just you hear these stories about Harley just being made out of fucking steel and not backing down. And it is just is terrifying and impressive and scary all at once. So at the end of part one, Harley Race had just won the belt for the seventh time and was starting a feud with Ric Flair. As part of the build up to Starcade 83, Harley put a hit out on Ric Flair offering $25,000 to any human being that could eliminate Ric Flair from the NWA, which seems fucking dangerous and irresponsible in an era where hills were getting stabbed by marks. <laughs> I got this money from Giant Baba for dropping the title to him for six days. I will take this money and use it to bait a crazy crackhead in Greensboro, North Carolina to pull out a rusty switchblade and stab the nature boy Ric Flair in the abdomen, preventing him from winning the title and going on to using that title to pawning it off to highspots.com, who I will have a close business relationship in the future, <laughs> and then preventing him from winning and surviving life and screwing up so many people's credit because I am the greatest wrestler on God's green earth. I think that's how the promo went, if I'm not mistaken. And he might have said, screaming, like, take the money. He might have said that somewhere in there, but I may be paraphrasing. We got a lot of director's cuts. Nick thinks a murder involves somewhere <laughs> in here, and then Jake's going off on tangents there. And I have to ask, Jake, I saw that George South replicated this promo against, uh, shit, Brad Anderson for the EWA heavyweight oh, oh, yeah, George, George South <laughs> loves him some cosplay mid-Atlantic angles. Like, he is, like, you have to, sometimes you have to understand... The, the only way to decode messages from George Seth, you have to have an understanding of mid-Atlantic wrestling and world-class wrestling, where he's like, oh, Fritz got to head home. Curry's at home with a gun. That means, hey, one of my kids in trouble. I need to run home real fast. I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> That's basically what that means. So, you jump all the way to gun to signify there's a problem? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there was always, when there was a problem with the Von Erichs, a gun was usually oh, involved. God, yeah, so let's, oh, let's be clarified. He could pick better analogies that don't involve a family that was so Sad. closely related to firearms. Sad, but sad just things saying. reminded. In a future episode, we'll discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably part four of that. <laughs> yeah, we'll be one of five thousand <laughs> podcast documentaries on on the Von Erichs. So, so this is going to be some real quick, just the stupidest trivia I might have ever found. This comes from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. 
Rock band Nodisur, who you might remember from the song Popular, violated WWE copyright on their new album with the song called Somebody Take the Damn Money. The song was based on the 1983 feud in the Carolinas where Harley Race put up a $25,000 bounty for anyone who could take out Ric Flair. The song included clips from Race's famous promo. They're currently reworking the song to get through copyright issues. Because of the violation, WWE took legal action and Not A Surf's new album has been delayed. Oh, shit. What the fuck? That, that <laughs> <laughs> dumbest thing I ever looked up. Bob Orton and Dick Slater would cash in on Harley's offer, giving Ric Flair a career-ending neck injury. With his neck broken, Ric Flair announced his retirement, and of course from here, he would never wrestle again. Everyone thought Ric Flair was out of action for good until a Mid-Atlantic Championship wrestling match September 21st, 1983. Orton and Slater were having a tag team match when Ric Flair, wearing a neck brace, flies out of the back with a baseball bat and chases them out of the arena, after which Rick cuts a promo and promises he's going to take Harley's belt. Flair came out with a baseball bat. I think before, like definitely after the bounty, and I think he might have even done it a little bit before too, because there's like actual 8x10s and that we used to sell when we did <laughs> appearance. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. Like You see Flair with his nice like Olivia Walker robes that he spent all the thousands of dollars on, and then like an Easton aluminum baseball bat out, out with a ring with him. It's just, it's the weirdest thing ever. It wasn't a Louisville slugger? He is, the, no, it was, it was a Louisville. Yeah, he made, he made sure he was going to cause some damage with it. <laughs> um, he was going to hit it an extra th- 30 to 50 yards depending on you know where he yeah, had in yeah, contact right. um but yeah it's it's just very weird and it's uh it's very funny he's it, like basically doing his worst crow sting cosplay yeah, possible so all I could so. think is like damn sting stole it from fucking flair yeah. this all led to november 24th 1983 starcade a flare for the gold in greensboro north carolina with special ref Gene Konitsky, Harley Race would step into a chain link fence with Ric Flair to battle for the 10 pounds of gold. Gene Konitsky, who was in the way the entire time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Harley, Harley was not a fan. Not, not, <laughs> not a fan. Nor was Rick. Rick was never a fan as well. A clumsy, dumb piece of shit, I think is the actual line, maybe? Do we want to talk about how uh, apparently Vince offered Harley 250 grand before the match to uh, jump to the WWE and dump the NWA title belt on WWF TV? It, but Harley turned him down because he, he took Vince into whatever restaurant they were at and made him look in the mirror. He's like, you see that? I got to look at that person every day. And he wouldn't do it because he couldn't look at himself in the mirror if he fucking sold out everybody. I mean, that's basically it. You just paraphrase the whole thing. So we'll just <laughs> take that. We can leave that in there. I mean, it's it's a story that's been told over and over yeah. and over again and also too nobody was ever worried that he was going to jump but they were more worried about the fact that there was a snowstorm and he was coming in from new york and i guess like him getting a flight from new york is normally like the biggest show of the year you'd think you'd come in the day before make sure you're there you right. have no issues but it just so happens he was going to be coming in that day and it just happened to be a time when the carolinas got hit with an unprecedented snowstorm so there was this issue in whether or not Harley was even going to make it to the biggest show of the year. <laughs> Murphy's <laughs> Cause, fucking cause law. Because he, he took this meeting with Vince because he's such a gentleman. Turned him down because he's such a gentleman. But he almost <laughs> fucking missed it because he's so much of a fucking gentleman. <laughs> so, But yeah, but, and I don't think that, and Harley's even said there was no discussion of, you know, taking the belt. It was, it was one of those things that it's kind of like maybe implied, like I want you to come aboard. 
fuck them over a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think it ever got to that point and never was said. There's a lot of things that Vince McMahon has done that we can paint him out to be the devil. This isn't one of those things. This I don't know time. about devil. It's just you know that's that's good TV. He just wanted good TV. Uh, yeah, like good TV <laughs> when he said the N word on TV, like that time. Wow, I was I was cool, and then you just buried Vince right there, hardcore. <laughs> I will. It's not hard. There's plenty of stuff out there. You want to hold a stack of papers in your hand and I knock it out? And we re- replay that incident. Just shut the damn questions. Don't you look at me so smug. <laughs> I've never seen defender events to offender events in so short amount of time. Listen, <laughs> if I've learned anything in this political climate, we have to attack people on the things that are actually wrong, not the things that appear to be wrong. Yeah, it's good. Rick and Harley have a brutal match before a bloody Ric Flair hits Harley with a flying crossbody for the win, and apparently this wasn't the planned finish, and they improv the crossbody on the fly. Oh really? I didn't. Uh, I missed that. Did you see what it was supposed to be or anything? Well, Nick Bye. saw the booking sheet. Did you see the booking sheet? Because <laughs> the finish is the finish. So just let you know, whatever happened, that was the finish. So unless you, unless you saw the booking sheet, which I don't even had a booking sheet without a finish. It's just like flare up. I like attitude, you, Jake. This is fun. <laughs> let's take a second to talk about how important of a moment this was for. For pro wrestling and especially Ric Flair's career to be made in the most high-profile show that had ever been in pro wrestling at this point, this is officially Harley passing the torch, like in front of everybody for the big. Oh, that's that moment. But I read so much about NWA; they always vote on who's going to get the title and the the secret board or whatever the fuck it is, and they're trying to figure out who they think could handle the title and they they had flair on the list obviously but they were never really sure and i always read that harley was always one of those guys that stood up and said that rick is the dude rick can fucking do this and that's the thing with harley just knowing on this he could spot fucking talent from a mile away he would put people over and say they're going to be big before they became big and flair was just one of the first guys to do that well and also too harley's first title run was what it was he was they were considering him interim, a guy that was basically holding it to get it to Jack Briscoe. And Flair's first title run was what it was. So I, I think Harley probably saw a lot of himself in Flair in, in his set of circumstances. Like, you know, Harley's like, yeah, my title run wasn't supposed to be what it was supposed to be, but it turned out to be this. But I feel like if given a second opportunity, he can do so much more. And Flair's second title run and everything that happened after that, just very much that. It, was everything the NWA needed at that time and basically was the guy carrying the entire alliance on his back. And a couple of years ago, um, NWA Fan Fest did a Q&A, which was the 25-year anniversary of this match. And they had Harley and Rick sit down and talk about this match and field some questions. And they went into depth about the whole, you know, possible going to Vince and the snowstorm and everything that happened with that. But I think the the thing that stuck up to me in that entire Q&A was something that Harley said. And I'm going to say it as Jake as opposed to Harley. I'm going to fight this very much <laughs> because I've done a lot of impersonations, but we don't want to make this a three-hour-long episode. The veins on Jake's forehead holding back are really huge. Um, you know, Harley talked about on this night when he dropped the belt to Rick that he knew when he did that that he was no longer going to be the man and he even pointed to Rick during this Q&A he goes and you see the way that that Rick is dressed and like Harley was doing this Q&A like in sweatpants and just a (laughs) little shirt and he and and Harley said he goes on that night I decided 
I was never going to dress like this. <laughs> and, the, the, and boy, to ride at Rick in his nice suit for this Q&A that was happening at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or on Thursday. And Harley's like, I just decided I'm never going to dress like him anymore. <laughs> and I'm just going to go on and do what I want. And he just kind of realized that the rest of his career was just going to be fun. And, you know, because as an NBA champ, you come in, you wear the suit, you look like a million bucks, you, you rent the Cadillac, you got, you got, you know, a nice watch on, you got gold rings, you got chains, you look like a million dollars. But, like, Harley realized at the end of it, like, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. I just kind of want to be one of the boys again, and I just kind of want to have fun and just take it for what it's worth. And that's basically what this was, was, was an end of an era. You know, and and Harley recognized that and passed it to a guy that still to this day wears suits and gold chains and <laughs> dresses as if, as if he is the NBA world champion. Yeah, that is very true. And as as weird as this was, like yeah, it's the big passing of the torch. But then if you do the work for years, Harley would be credited as a seven-time NWA world champion because when he won it back from Flair, like four months later in New Zealand, they refused to acknowledge that. Like Jake said, if it happened in Japan or fucking India or whatever, it didn't really happen. And then four days later, Ric Flair wins it back from Harley Race in Singapore. So uh, that's just good shit. It's like, man, they just they had to make that little bit more money before they officially passed that torch. Yeah, it's like racing. You gotta get, you gotta shake the wheel a little bit so you get every last drop out of the gas tank. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it. I, that's where Jake Manning stands in his wrestling career as we speak today. He's just shaking, <laughs> shaking the, wheel the wheel to get that last little drop out of the fuel lines before he makes that pit stop forever. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was beautiful. All right. So over the next few years, Harley would hop back on the territory rotation, even making a short stop in 84 in the AWA to wrestle his old pal, Larry Henning. In 86, Harley would take part in the show with the greatest promo package of all time, Wrestle Rock 86. <laughs> Be there. Held on 420 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Harley took on Rick Martell. They were having a solid old school wrestling match when both of them tumbled over the top rope, kept fighting, and both got counted out. But I think my favorite part was like they're building up. It's a super dream match, blah blah blah. Yeah. And then the announcer is like, with a twenty minute time. Limit. <laughs> it's like, man, I've been looking forward to this match for decades, but you got twenty minutes. Hurry the fuck up. From there, it was more territory loops, stops in Japan, but by 1986, Harley was examining the wrestling world, and we mentioned how good of an eye Harley had for wrestling. He saw the changes in the NWA, the territories were in trouble, even his own territory in Kansas City wasn't doing great, so being the good businessman he was, Harley decided to take the easy money and join the World Wildlife Fund. (laughs) <laughs> and he fought it. He fought a tooth and nail. He handcuffed him to a, himself to a, a door. He burned down a WWF ring. Uh, allegedly. allegedly. <laughs> Pulled a gun. Allegedly. He smacked Hogan in the ribs. I believe that one. Uh, yeah, I believe that one. They're allegedly there. But I think you could just see the writing on the wall. Also, too, St. Louis had kind of fell at that time. And St. Louis, like I said, was very much the the cradle of the NWA, the alliance that is, and then Sam Munchnik like moving out and away. And also too, I think WWF had like bought up TV in St. Louis. Yeah. And that was like, Oh, that's what really pissed Harley off. Yeah. I think, I think Harley like, realized that was, that was like a nail in the coffin is St. Louis getting taken over by WWF and all those Midwest territories, like kind of seeping out everywhere. I think he just kind of realized, well, this is the hot thing. Also, I think he kind of realized this was like the next big thing. And, Harley being who he is and making people, he probably is like, well, if this is going to be the next big thing, 
they're going to need somebody to make some of these stars. Well, I'm the best at making stars. So I'll go up there, I'll take my name as Harley Race and use it to get some guys over and, and make them bigger household names. And with Harley's you know, cachet in the Midwest and the Southern NWA region. That's where WWF always failed to draw as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you bring in somebody like Harley Race, it's like, oh, well, this is a credible show because Harley Race is on it. It's a, he realizes his stamp of approval and he just recognized that, hey, you know, if this is where we're going to go, I'm going to come in and make sure that it happens so wrestling can continue on. Now, granted, this is not what I see wrestling to be, but if wrestling's going to exist like this, why not go help it along? As opposed to this falling apart and then everything falls apart. I mean, just kind of help wrestling in general. That's what impressed me the most about doing research on Harley is, you see, oh, we're doing an old timer. And then I just, there's, in my head, I'm just expecting a bitter old, oh, times are changed, blah, 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 blah. But that wasn't Harley at all. And he recognized when things would change and why it was good and when it was bad. But for the most part, he was like water, as Bruce Lee would say. So in May of 86, Harley Race entered the WWF managed by Bobby the Goat Heenan. Now, WWE has only in recent years started recognizing that other wrestling promotions exist. So in 86, they sure as hell weren't about to glamorize Harley's NWA title runs. So in an attempt to get Harley the respect he deserved, they decided to make him the king of wrestling. As part of the 86 King of the Ring, which there is no footage of, Harley beat George the Animal Still, Billy Jack Haynes, and finally Pedro Morales winning the whole damn thing. They did King of the Ring just at house shows every year. Don Morocco won it for the first time in 85, and then Savage won 87, DiBiase 88, Tito, and then Brett won it in 91. They didn't hold it some years. It was just one of those weird type of just house show draws. Because Purview only existed for like a year. <laughs> And even when pay-per-views did exist in this time during the 80s, it wasn't like, oh, this is our main moneymaker. The moneymaker was in the house shows. And you're in these areas in the Northeast more regularly than you are other places. This is like really just before the runs where they're in Chicago one night and then they're in San Francisco. And then the next night it's Madison Square Garden. Then it's Boston. And then it's St. Louis. And then St. Louis is Minneapolis. And then back to Lowell, Massachusetts. <laughs> like it's back before that. So they're in these Northeast towns a considerable amount of time. And you've got the same talent roster and you know, you've got to do something to freshen it up every time. So you can only book a battle royal so many times that Andre the Giant's going to win every time. <laughs> yep. So you got to do something different, like having a tournament on the house shows that have some sort of special attraction. Also, too, you can book less guys in a tournament. And it's a big enough attraction, so you can fill up an entire show and, and make it something special. And, and it's like always this time of the year, you'll see the king of the ring in this particular town. Are they getting a little boost for wrestling three times in a night? Uh, probably. Yeah. I, I, maybe, but uh, definitely not like double your pay, you know. But yeah. it's just like, oh, a little bit more than expected. Or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it was also interesting. They really tried to push Harley as this king. They even held the Sam Muchnick Memorial Tourney. And Harley won that shit, too, like a month later to really solidify him as the king. He beat JYD, B, B. Brian Blair, the Killer Bees, and then he beat Ricky Damn Steamboat in the finals. As part of being king, Harley would make his defeated opponents bow down and kneel before him. 
This eventually led to an angle which I will describe as uncomfortable. <laughs> on, on Saturday night's main event, number nine, Harley tried to make a junkyard dog bow to him. He didn't. So a match was set for WrestleMania three, where the loser would have to bow to the winner. So they'd head into the Pontiac Silverdome, dude. <laughs> and this is a very short match. And yeah, uh, I was surprised at how abrupt it is. Sorry, go on. This match is so good. It's it's a JYD match, so you know it's it's fun. And then Wikipedia said it's four minutes and twenty two seconds, but somehow. <laughs> Harley Race still took 3,000 pumps in it. Yeah, it, it was ridiculous. insane. Because he wanted to put over JYD. Yeah. He, yeah. He, was on the, he was just like the hottest thing in Bill Watts' territory. He was now coming to the WWF, and he was probably the hottest he's ever been in his career. He's on cartoons. He's got merchandise. I mean, this is at peak JYD. Grab them cakes. JYD, <laughs> like this is... And and you're gonna need a good opponent and somebody like Harley Race coming in and ensuring that JYD looks as fantastic as possible to continue that rocket ship of who he is. You're gonna need someone like Harley Race, and that's what Harley knew. And just a testament to what Jake said, and uh, just working in my favorite spot of the damn match, Harley's standing, uh, falling, diving headbutt. He hits it on JYD, but as you know. J- his kind of gimmick was he had a hard head, so JYD totally no-sells the fucking headbutt, and Harley rises around on the ground like, oh, fuck, JYD's <laughs> head just broke my skull. No, 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 not just JYD's. All of black people's heads are hard. <laughs> That's right. You got to remember that. That's that, true. This is the racist rule of professional wrestling. Interesting. But not as hard a head as Samoans. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I will say this, though. One time there was this question of what was going to happen when JYD wrestled the Samoan SWAT team. And Samoan SWAT team, they went for a double headbutt, and they're like, oh, what's going to happen? And JYD sat up. So like, oh, JYD has a harder head than these Samoans. (laughs) But any other black person, it cancels out, and the Samoan would have the harder head. So So blackhead versus blackhead, it would be like... Can we get away from this conversation? (laughs) I was just telling you, you you continue this conversation much longer than it needed to be. I just said three words past your two minutes. I've already said 17 (laughs) that I might regret in the future, but I'm just... This is what has been explained to me by old-timers in wrestling. This is not the views... You're quoting. You're not preaching. These these are not the views and opinions of Jake Manning. I feel like everybody's head is genetically the same. (laughs) You're not a proponent of eugenics jake <laughs> i am from iowa and that seems to be the cradle of eugenics but that is not that is neither here nor there and not a part of this conversation uh everybody's everybody and love wins. <laughs> that, that's my that's a shirt everybody is everybody i was gonna save this for when we cover junkyard dog but one time i was watching something and uh, for the listeners who don't know, Spencer is my girlfriend. Uh, she's half black. I was watching something. Junkyard Dogs walking down to the ring with the chains around his neck. And Spencer <laughs> goes, what the fuck? <laughs> and I had to explain, no, 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 no. He's, he's not a slave. He's, he's a dog. <laughs> he's a junkyard dog. <laughs> and she was like, that's not better <laughs> yeah, i like how the you know the compliment is he's a mongrel yeah, he's less than human yeah. he's not he's not human he's yeah, a yeah. dog and nick's like you get it right yeah. <laughs> love you <laughs> uh, real quick king harley race got queen moolah and i just say he deserves better than fucking queen moolah Amen. jesus christ so Harley uh, wins the match with a belly-to-belly after JYD is distracted by Heenan. After the match, 
Harley sets in a chair in the middle of the ring. Junkyard gives him like a kind of a technical bow. And then as Harley jumps up to celebrate, JYD takes the chair, knocks Harley out of his robe with it. JYD puts the robe on, hops in one of those sweet ring carts, and leaves to a giant pop. I'm pretty sure this was all an allegory for the Emancipation Proclamation. (laughs) We haven't gotten out of it. Fuck. Uh, Dear God, going on to Jim Duggan. Harley Race would spend 87 feuding with Jim Duggan. I mean, goddamn. I had never seen the 1987 Slammy Awards bit with Harley Race and Hacksaw, but it is my new, probably top 10, top 20 favorite wrestling moments ever, where yeah. basically um, Harley wins best uh, best ring apparel. Jim Duggan in his tuxedo shirt is totally fucking offended. <laughs> Bobby Heenan walks up with Harley to accept the award. Highlight, Bobby Heenan calls Jim Duggan pecker breath. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I was like, man, we're getting into blowjob insults on the fucking Slammy Awards. What res- turns into a huge brawl, Duggan and Harley crash into the makeup area. They hit each other. I think it's cream pies and chemicals. There's the, there's the great spot. Okay, so they're at the mirrors, and then we turn camera left, and there's a man with a donkey and a bunch of baskets with chickens in them. Uh, they crash into those. Harley picks up a live fucking chicken. It's going... <laughs> Harley grabs it by the head and starts beating the shit out of Hacksaw's Jim Duggan <laughs> with his live chicken. The, 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 the keeper of the donkey in the background is just like, oh, shit. Heenan gets thrown into a cardboard box. They slam into a chain link fence. They get into, like, the electrical area. Harley bumps hard. Like, we talk about Harley bumping, but he takes some bumps that fucking hurt. All the while, the audio for the next award of Best Head, who is, if you're wondering, is a tie between Bam Bam Bigelow and Mean Gene. Meanwhile, (laughs) Hacksaw and um, Harley are still beating the shit out of each other. Harley gets up. He's about to put Hacksaw through a table. Hacksaw gets out of the way. Harley smashes through a table, and when he hits it and the way it breaks, you know it's a hard way table. Harley's doing background table bumps, and then finally, they go on to the next award. Hacksaw and Harley crash through the wall. Hacksaw picks up his 2x4, and they go at it, and then they run off stage. It is so fucking awesome. I think it's it, it's highlighted on an episode of Superstars on the WWE Network. You can find it. It, it made me so fucking happy. Pl- please find that clip, dear God. Later in 1987, Harley would kick off the first ever Survivor Series, teaming up with Hercules, Ron Bass, Danny Davis, and the greatest intercontinental all cha- champion. I, I didn't say that right. Uh, the Honky Tonk <laughs> Man to take on Randy Savage, Jake Roberts, Ricky Steamboat, Jim Dugan, and Brutus Beefcake. Did I say Dugan to Jim Duggan? <laughs> you did. You said Dugan. <laughs> Jim Duggan. I was like, is this Nick's thing What is it with Dugan? these North Carolina motherfuckers referring to <laughs> J- Axel Jim Dugan? Uh, like, but- Jeff Rudd, he's, like, probably the most North Carolina accent yeah. guy I know. And he's like, oh, you mean Axel Jim Dugan? <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's Duggan. It's yeah. always been Duggan. Do we just need Mean Gene and me and other Midwest <laughs> people to pronounce Axel Jim Duggan? Uh, to vouch so- for Nick, I think he would normally nail that, but... Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Yeah, when I first started comedy, there was a comic named James Dugan, and it's fucked me up. Oh my god, you're right. That makes uh, total sense. So Harley, Harley would get tagged in during this match to wrestle Ricky Steamboat a little bit. Later, they continue the hacksaw feud by tagging him in. They do a double clothesline over the top rope, uh, and the two would fight on the outside, eliminating both of them in a countout. 
and without their king there to guide them, Harley's team would lose the match. Aww. Now we get to the match that more or less ended Harley's run in WWF on Saturday night's main event in Nashville, Tennessee, March 7th, 1988. Harley would take on Hulk Hogan in a no guns allowed match. <laughs> Shit. As Harley was the sick Nick Mondo of his era, there came a spot where he had Hogan positioned on a table outside of the ring. He dove to hit Hulk, but Hulk Hogan moved as you should if someone's trying to crush you as you lay on a table. Harley hit the table, a common spot you see today, but since this wasn't a special wrestling gimmick table, as those didn't exist yet, it no-sold Harley, barely breaking, and the metal from, like, the other side of the table forced its way into Harley's abdomen, giving him a hernia. The sound of this shit when it when he hits it is seriously sickening. It, it, it's even it's Ventura's on commentary, but the way he reacts to it, He's out of character because he's like, oh, fuck, that probably really <laughs> fucked up Harley. Well, and the thing is, a spot he'd done multiple times before, yeah. and he'd actually done it with Macho Man, and Vince saw it, and, of course, typical carnival barker, Vince McMahon's like, oh, goddamn, that's a, that's a wonderful spot you got there, King. Tell you what, why don't you do that with Hogan on NBC Saturday's Night? it! <laughs> And then he's like, oh, but that was wooden? Let's do steel. Let's just do fucking metal. I fucking love it! <laughs> fucking injuries on television. Dick Ebersole's gonna chuck off to this later, and so am I. I have a theory on this injury, because I watched a lot of Harley Race matches, and he may be the best bumper ever. In all the matches I watched, he never took an awkward fall or, like, a yes. weird landing. I think the table not breaking is literally the first time Harley race ever took a less than flawless bump. And his body was just like, I don't know what the fuck to do here, man. Hernia. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Harley talks about, he says like uh, to to his dying day, he said the dumbest thing he ever did was taking that table bump at at that match. And I got to think it's like, it's a big NBC show. You know, it's like, what table am I? We'll just put a table out there. It won't matter. They don't get to go over shit or really check anything. And the table that, I mean, goddamn. You see how that table breaks and how sturdy it is, and it's like no time ever, not even some crazy fucking CZW indie show, should you ever be taking a bump on this table. Harley would push through and finish the match, and Hulk Hogan hulks up and wins. You get 80s wrestling. Uh, One hidden gem I just want to get in is Bobby Heenan cutting a promo after Harley is is hurt and they're working that angle, and Heenan has tears in his eyes the entire time, and you tell he's doing... Bobby Heenan manager work stuff, but he is so fucking shoot messed up about what's going on with Harley that the anger and the love in his voice all at once about Harley and then what he means and how much it hurts Heenan. It, it's I'll try to post it on our social media, but it is a top like seriously fucking top notch promo from Heenan. It's it's not funny. It's amazing. Harley would also push through to make it to WrestleMania 4, where he was part of the opening battle royal. He had a strong showing, making it to the last five before getting eliminated by Junkyard Dog, and then Bat News Brown won. Doing some research on Hogan and finding out his best matches, for some reason, the Harley-Texas death matches never popped up. And they have one like in Boston, uh, I can't remember the other one, in the, the one in MSG is the best one. 
I mean, this shit is fucking good. They, there's three of them over house shows, and this is the feud that Hogan had right after Andre at WrestleMania 3. So just another compliment to Harley. I mean, they beat each other with chairs. Harley chokes Hogan with the entrance curtain. The, my favorite part, Hogan's such a dick, he knows there's no DQ. So he just pushes the shit out of the ref to start one of the matches because <laughs> he knows he won't get DQ'd. Harley pile drives Hogan on this concrete. Hogan sells it like he's crippled. Hogan wins every time by smashing Harley in the face with the championship belt. They're good, kind of, I mean, you know, as ECW as it's going to get back then. But Harley just, he finds a way, even when it looks like a spot where it's safe that he can bump, Harley finds a way to bump in the most dangerous looking spot. But you can tell he's fine. Uh, it, it's, it's great matches. I think most of them are on YouTube. I had to dig deep. And the shining example at the end of the MSG match, Lord Alfred Hayes has the call that it goes as, as such. What a great, great Christian man Hulk Hogan is. <laughs> and my eyes bugged out of my head. And I, was, I mean, the separation of church and pro wrestling is, I mean, I think that's something we can all agree on. Or the separation between church and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. There's a pretty deep divide right now. <laughs> Love thy brother, brother. That's right. Love thy brother, brother. So after WrestleMania 4, Harley would take some time off to get surgery and to recover. He'd be back at the next year's Survivor Series, all leading to Harley's final match in the WWF 1989 Royal Rumble, where he'd take on Haku, trying to regain his crown as when Harley was injured, Bobby Heenan had crowned Haku as the new king. The highlight of this, I think, is uh, Haku gets brung out by a bunch of guys holding up the throne. And then Harley comes out second and immediately dumps and pushes Haku out of the throne and he falls to the ground. It's a good, like, nah, fuck you, I'm the king. So Harley puts over the new young guy at the time on his way out of the door. After leaving WWF, Race continued to make his rounds in places like World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico, Stampede Wrestling in Calgary, and the NWA territories that were still surviving. Harley would eventually go back to the NWA and join WCW showing up at the Great American Bash on July 7th, 1990, where he beat Tommy Rich. He'd have various matches in WCW, mostly at house shows with people like Junkyard Dog, Lex Luger, and Sting. During a house show in December of 1990, Harley sustained a shoulder injury that would more or less end his in-ring career. However, he'd be back at 91's Great American Bash, starting his managing career with Lex Luger. And Lex Luger had nothing but great things to say about Harley Race. Yeah, he puts him over a ton just as he traveled with him, the wisdom he gave him as a mentor. Lex said all the pressure that he felt at the time having the belt. Just Harley's words really helped him a lot at this time. In 92, Harley would start adding more wrestlers to his stable, including Big Van Vader, who would beat Sting for the World Championship July 12th, 1992. Harley Race managing Vader. Harley was the best part of Vader's matches. Um, just Harley coming in and taking a couple bumps uh, did more to put that guy over than what Vader did. And that's all I'm going to say. If you want to hear more about my opinions and thoughts on Vader, go look at our archives. Hashtag fuck Vader. I'm glad you said that because if you didn't, I was going to... Jake, you got to say fuck Vader at least once, but you beat me to it. Um, the one thing, um, this was a good quote. It's one of my favorite Harley quotes. Jake will like this one. This is Harley. If Vader got hit one time as hard as Foley did, his career would have been over. He'd have quit. Cactus is a freak of nature. 
Harley would manage Vader until January of 95 when Harley was in yet another car wreck. This one, he required hip replacement surgery with that piled up on all his other car wrecks. His pro wrestling wear and tear and injuries put him out of the business for good. So then just wrapping up Harley's career, he'd do a handful of appearances in WWE and TNA. He'd do stuff around the indies, the convention circuits. He'd even run a school and a promotion out of Eldon, Missouri called World League Wrestling. Some of, some of the fun stuff he does, uh, he like referees a Colt Cabana CM Punk match from early 2000s. Harley was another one just giving a testament to how good he was at spotting talent. He knew Punk was going to be huge before Punk was huge and he called it. And, and that's another thing too, like his promotion. He would do these seminars once a year where he would bring in officials from WWE, usually like Dr. Tom or like Ricky Steamboat or, or whoever, like somebody who is a WWE agent, have them come in. An official from Noah, who he had good working relationship with, like if they had, wow. if Noah had young boys, they would send them to Harley's Damn. in Missouri. So like he would have like like Go Shizaki <laughs> like came Fuck over, yeah. Go was and, and and other young young boys from from New Japan, they would come over when they're on their little excursions through America. They would send them to Harley's, so you, they'd be wrestling these shows in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, to, to get some experience in the American style of professional wrestling. So, like, he would always have an official from Noah and maybe, like, TNA. Like, he'd maybe have Terry Taylor or somebody come in there. So, like, these, these camps that he would run for, like, a week or whatever, he'd run them there at his school to basically the students that paid money to be trained by Harley would get exposure to somebody from WWE, TNA, and, and Japan. And then also, too, like, if you were an indie guy and you showed up and you paid to be there as well, you could get some exposure that way. So they can get your name kind of in the heads of these people that could possibly get you a job. So there's there's a lot of wrestlers that did that to kind of get on the radar. And Harley was just doing that to help give some of these guys that are out there trying to make a name for themselves an opportunity to have a little FaceTime with somebody that could possibly give them a job. That was one of the things that he did there. Also, too, guys that, that train there, he gave them an opportunity to go to Noah. Like my, my friend Jason Jones, who uh, is known as Leland Race now. Like Harley, oh, okay. Harley went as far as... Like, basically saying, like, I like this kid. You're no longer going to be called Jason Jones. You're going to be called Leland Race, which Leland is Harley's middle name. And basically claimed that Leland Race was an illegitimate son of his because Harley's so wild. Oh, yeah. Obviously, he'd have illegitimate kids. So the story is this is his illegitimate son back to seek revenge upon Harley Race and his promotion. And so he went out of his way <laughs> to really get Leland Race over. And... and Jason got to go over to Japan for three months. And when I met Jason back in 2005, 2006, and I, I love I, I love Jason to death, Leland. I'll just call him Leland because I think he prefers to be called Leland and he prefers to keep kayfabe on him being Harley's illegitimate son, even though I've met his father before and it's not Harley Race. Um, but Leland, good kid, a good wrestler, very competent in the ring. But to say that he would have spent any time in Japan... I wouldn't have pictured or pegged or thought that would ever happen for him or he had the connections to. But him working and wrestling with Harley, he was able to get that position and earn that position. And he was definitely a guy who took care of Harley towards the end of his his life and was the guy that, you know, wheeled him in a wheelchair in the airports, to the conventions, all of his autograph signings, especially after BJ passed away. Harley's wife, BJ, oh my God. If I could ever find a woman 
who loves me as much as BJ loved Harley, I would be a lucky man. Like I, you, you could talk about all of the accomplishments that Harley's achieved in his entire career, but him finding a woman like BJ has got to be one of his best accomplishments of all time. That that woman took such good care of that man and was so good to him and loved him so much. And my business, HighSpots.com, has done a lot of business with Harley and his World League Wrestling over the years. And Harley was kind enough to endorse our wrestling rings. And I think that like his endorsement really like helped our wrestling rings being at the forefront of, of popularity with like oh it's a high spots ring well harley race was the one that stood up and said hey these are good rings you guys should be buying these these mm. rings these rings are top notch he even huh. said it he, his endorsement was like if these rings were around when i wrestled i'd wrestle for another 20 years <laughs> i think that was that was the slogan that was like on our website for a very long time but we did a lot of business with harley and deal directly with bj and what a fantastic person she was she was fair very direct took no bullshit especially from harley like harley needed somebody like that right. matter of fact how they met is a really funny story how they met is um harley was at the bank and he had some sort of discrepancy and basically how he met bj is they got into a fight the first time they ever met at the bank over over some banking issue like they had a knockdown drag out fight a screaming match in the middle of the bank and somehow that it ended up a relationship that ended up in marriage and probably one of the best relationships and best marriage marriages he ever had. Hey, she passion was, is important. Yeah, she. It, it was just one of those things, the immovable object versus the unstoppable force. <laughs> exactly. it's just, she wasn't going to take no bullshit. He doesn't take any bullshit at all. They were just perfect for each well, other. Well, shit, I guess we got to get married now. And, and his school, his promotion w- wouldn't have existed without her and with without her uh, help and guidance. And she was always there, very forthcoming. And uh, a, woman, a woman who I dated for a very long time w- was taken in by Harley and, you know, uh, Sergio Bolt, she, Josie, she wrestled a lot for Harley's promotion and Harley was so good to her. And anytime he saw somebody with talent, he always went out of his way to help them. He was just such an amazing, amazing individual when it, when it comes to that. And I'll never forget when I first met Harley Race, for the first time in, I believe, 2005. Yes, it was 2005. We brought Harley Race in, and there was a small promotion that actually was the beginnings of PWX, which is a North Carolina promotion that most people know, but originally it was like CWA, Carolina Wrestling Association or Alliance or whatever it was called. We used to run out of Statesville, North Carolina, and Fuck yeah. I was I, I was wrestling on the show, and I was, I was like their mid-card champion or whatever, and I was embroiled in this feud with Rick Converse and we were building to this match and I was managed by a guy who was calling himself Ty Dillinger before there was a Ty Dillinger in WWE and so my manager's always sticking his nose in his business and then we're going to bring Harley Race in to be in the corner of Rick Converse to counteract the the evil actions of Ty Dillinger (laughs) and we brought Harley in We we just expect Harley to come out cut a promo or, or be, be at ringside and do something. He ended up like clotheslining Ty Dillinger on the, gr- on the, on the ground. And he took like this amazing flip bump, like out on the ground. And he was intro- actually very integral in the finish. I think he even called what the finish was going to be. <laughs> he, say, he goes, I got an idea what your finish should be. Yeah. And then after the match is over, he pulled me and Rick aside and he pulled up a chair and told us to pull up a chair and we all sat around and it's a picture I've put online via social media and I, I think I even sent it it's been put out through 10 Bell Pod and you just see 
me, Rick Converse, and Harley Race all sitting down talking, and Harley's telling us what we did wrong, what we did right. You know, I know he was brought in, and we, and we paid him money to be there. We paid him for the appearance, and we paid him to be in the ringside, and, you know, he spoke up and, and gave us a finish, and he could have just done that and said, nice job, guys, got in his car and left. But he decided to stay 20 minutes after the show and tell us what we did right, what we did wrong, and give us a piece of advice. He did that all himself. He was not asked. He was not prodded to do so. He just did it. I didn't, I didn't even have time to go, like, hey, what'd you think? He's like, come over here. <laughs> like, he just sat us all down and just – he solely did it because he wanted professional wrestling to be better. If these guys are in the business, they have to be good, and I have to make sure that they're good. And I will do that by instructing them on what they did right and what they did wrong. And then also that weekend, he ran a seminar at the High Spots School. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. We were running the seminar and we were running drills. And it was a short little thing. It might have been like half of them, like, like pick up the match right at the comeback or something like that. And we just went in there and called it and did it and whatever. And the guy I was in there with, he, he did a couple of things. And Harley's like, ah, oh, you should have done this and this and this in time. And then Harley looked at me and he goes, and you? You were good. <laughs> You've always been good. And I know that. So, like, shit. Like, Harley Race said I was shit. good. And it, it was such an impact. And it just came so much out of nowhere that Ty Dillinger was actually in the school area, but he was in the couch, which was had its back to the ring. So he was actually taking a nap. <laughs> so when Harley Race said, and you, you're good. Ty like sat up and woke up like what? Wait, Harley Race just said Jake's good, and it, it it's something I never forgot, and something that Harley never forgot. Like I remember multiple times when I'd be out there at the Cauliflower Alley Club, they would run this tryout to see who would be in the show that night. Mm-hmm. And I remember one year it was very political who got into the Cauliflower Alley Club show that that Thursday night, and I and I didn't have a lot of connections and I didn't have a lot of buzz. I'm like, mm, I'm probably not going to get in. But one of the people that decided who got on the show was Harley Race. Yeah. So I made sure before he went over and convened with people to decide who was on the show, I was like, hello, Mr. Race, how are you today? And I go, hey, kid, what's going on? And he recognized me. And then I went from not being on the show to being on the show because Harley Race remembered I was good. Yeah. Put and, yourself out there. Yeah. So I've, and, I, and I think one of my biggest regrets in my entire wrestling career is I never found the time to get out to – one of Harley's shows in Missouri. Every year, I'd always look at the calendar. I'd always think about it. I'm like, uh, what, what's going to... Because open-door policy. Uh, Harley made it very clear that anybody from, from High Spots has an open-door policy to show up, sell merch at his shows. And so, some of his bigger shows would usually do pretty well because he'd bring in, like, Flair or Piper, so he would draw a lot of people in Eldon, Missouri. And he would definitely put us on the show and definitely put us in a match. And I wrestled a couple of students from his school... Like, I remember having a match with this guy called, I think his name was Mark Sterling, and he was one of Harley's students. And we wrestled this 20-minute match, and we called it all in the ring. It was unbelievable. It's one of those things, like, it's what George always talks about is that back in the day, guys would just know. There was a list of spots that you always knew, and a chin lock was a chin lock, a, a leapfrog was a leapfrog, no matter what. And you could just go out there and call and do it. So we went out there and called it for 20 minutes, and because of the training that I received from George and the training that he received from Harley, we were able to put together this match and we spoke the same language. It was just, just amazing. And I was like, wow, these are the type of wrestlers he's producing. Cause I felt like I was pretty good at the time. I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, these, these guys are just as good, good as I am. And it just it was amazing. 
how good his training was and how prepared he got some of his wrestlers to do so and, and, and go on. And you can see why, you know, a lot of them ended up going to Japan and, and wrestling for Noah and other promotions and, and, and anybody that came in, there's like multiple people that would come in for like, you know, a couple of weeks to kind of refine their skills. Like a lot of, a lot of wrestlers you wouldn't even expect or know would just come in and wrestle and just like, you know, I'm just kind of get the ring rust off or like WWE guys that would come through. And you look at someone like Trevor Murdoch who always kind of stayed close to that area to always kind of stayed sharp and in the mix. And a lot of the other guys that came out of there and a lot of really good Midwest indie guys that, that came from that. But yeah, Harley was just, just the man. Like he was always contributing even though he couldn't contribute in the ring anymore, contributing to wrestling, pushing it forward, and uh, always looked upon me and was happy to see me remember who I was every time I, I saw him. And uh, I'm, there's one particular time where I'm very happy he remembered me. It was probably about less than 10 years ago. We were doing like the Wrestle Reunion shows, and we were doing one of them in LA. Ooh. And I think this was maybe shortly after BJ, BJ passed away, unfortunately, and he had had a, someone else, you know, making sure that he got to the appearances on time. Right, and right. of course, you know, you know, that's an extra expense, but usually you work something out and there was some sort of agreement made with Michael and Harley on, on a plane ticket. And Michael wanted to make sure that he got Harley's money up front before he ever started working, you know, signing autographs and taking pictures. But they come to an agreement, like, I'm going to take a little bit out of the appearance fees for this or for whatever expense. And that was the thing. And Michael at the, at the wrestling union was very like, very much like WrestleCon all over the place. I need to hurry up and do this. He saw, Michael saw me knew that I had a good relationship with Harley and wasn't thinking at the time, but just knew he had to get Harley's money to him immediately. But he also knew he had to take some money out of that envelope. So he goes to me, he goes, here's Harley, Harley's money. Make sure you take $200 out for something or whatever. I can't remember what it was. And gave me the money and then sent me off. And then all of a sudden, as like I'd gotten out of eyeshot of Michael, Michael goes, oh, fuck, what did I just do? I just sent Jake over to Harley Race and told him to take money out of his pay envelope. (laughs) (laughs) Not not even like a situation like, oh, I just sent Jake off to get yelled at by Harley Race. He's like, oh, fuck, I just sent Jake over to get fucking murdered. (laughs) (laughs) And Jake was all smiles. All smiles. (laughs) I thought like, oh, okay, sure, I'm helping boss. I'm going to go see Harley Race. But I'll tell you what, fucking Harley, understanding the agreement that he had made, told him that I reminded of him whatever situation i had to do to get that other 200 but like a fucking old timer harley takes that envelope fucking pops it open and starts fucking popping off hundred dollar bills and counting them down on the fucking table just boom 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 gives me them out he was supposed to give me back gave it to me and i looked right at him and i was like are we good and harley just gave me the thumbs up the the most manliest goddamn thumbs up i ever got in my life and just realizing like holy shit uh, my life has been spared. <laughs> like, if, if, it was a thumbs up, not a thumbs down. Yeah, it was not a thumbs down. <laughs> like, if I was ever on death row and the governor walked in and said, no, sir, you may live, and gave me a thumbs up, it wouldn't mean as much to me as that thumbs up I got from Harley Race that day at Russell <laughs> Union in L.A. So th- those are some of the, the, the interactions that I had with Harley. So very active, very much left an impression on me even though he's very much in the stage of his career where he's mostly doing autograph appearances, doing pictures on autographs, and managing his wrestling school. Very active and very much had an impact on my career and many others. 
So it was Harley Race's contributions to pro wrestling that earned him a spot in the 2004 WWE Hall of Fame. He was inducted by Ric Flair, who gave Harley just tons of credit for his career. And yeah, a great speech by Flair. Rick was more emotional than Harley was. Uh, <laughs> Harley's speech, short and sweet, is very good. Getting into the later 2000s, Harley's age and health was starting to catch up with him. He broke both his legs at a fall in his home. Uh, he needed blood transfusions to survive the surgery. So, you know, donate blood, people. On March 1st of 2019, it was announced that Harley was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And then sadly, August 1st, 2019, the great Harley Race passed away at the age of 76. Jake mentioned Trevor Murdoch, who was a former student. Trevor tells a fantastic story. Heartfelt as shit. He's been with him over 10 years or God knows how long. But Trevor documenting how WWE helped Harley and how much it meant to Trevor and Trevor being there in Harley's last moments. It's, it's, it's fucking fantastic. Look it up on YouTube. Yeah, basically just talked about how WWE paid for Harley to get back home to see the people that he loved just one last time. And you think about WWE being a heartless corporation. Well, sometimes they can pull something out of their hat for people that have given their lives to professional wrestling. And that, that, that was one of those times. So look it up. Trevor tells that story better than anybody else. Yep. All right. Final thoughts on the greatest wrestler on God's green earth. Like we said before, I didn't really know too much about Harley going in. Starcade match, the WWF run, the King stuff. But getting into it, I always like diving in on this podcast when I don't really know someone or wouldn't normally dive in. It helps me get to know a different side and a different territory and a different era of wrestling. And Harley, I mean, if there's a workhorse in the history of professional wrestling, who is number one? Harley's, I mean, he was doing like over 300 days a year when Bockwinkle and Backlund were still doing like 180, 200. Harley would go every fucking night. He would let anyone do what they want to do. He never said no to a move. He was generous as shit, and he always put in every single minute that he was needed. Like I said before, I, I expect him to be bitter, kind of Ole Anderson shit, and he wasn't that at all. He has his reckless, crazy ways, and I mean, you can see it in his son, who's a two-time amateur wrestling state champion, but Harley didn't want him to get into pro wrestling. Harley knew, probably knew his reckless ways were not good for his son, and he nipped that in the bud. Harley seems like a good fucking dude. It was good to get to know him. One quote that really stood out to me was, Tommaso Ciampa was heavily inspired by Harley. I think he was at his school a bit, and this quote was really good. It applies to so much shit. Wrestle every night so that everyone watching you will think that on the next show, you deserve to be the world champion or main event that show. And we talk about Harley Broadway's, one-hour Broadway's wrestling for an entire fucking hour. And I compiled an entire list of every single person that Harley had a one-hour Broadway with. Bear with me. Here we go. These are in chronological-ish order. Danny Littlebear, Mr. Wrestling, Bruno San Martino, Terry Funk, four to five times, Ricky Romero, Dory Funk, God knows how many times. And one of the weirdest things, there's not that much footage of him and Dory out there. There's a Japan match and that's it. Jerry Briscoe, Jack Briscoe, Rocky Johnson multiple times, Ron Fuller, Jerry Lawler, Jumbo Saruta like three or four times, Superstar Billy Graham, Ken Lucas, Ricky Steamboat, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, Giant Baba multiple times, George Goulas, Tony Atlas like four times. What the fuck? <laughs> 
Tommy Rich, Rick Martell, Manny Fernandez, David Von Erich, Rick Flair, God knows how many times, Mike Graham, Carlos Colon, and these are my three favorites. Harley Race had a 60-minute draw in Macon, Georgia with Stan Hansen in a no-DQ match. What the fuck the idea of that match is the scariest thing I've ever heard. He also had an hour draw with Flair in a steel cage, which seems fucking insane. And this might be my favorite. Down in Mexico, when Star Wars was big, Harley Race had a one-hour draw as a guy dressed up as fucking (laughs) C-3PO. Harley Race was before my time, so... You know, I understood he was one of the greats. He, he's like one of those guys, like Bruno or what? It, he's like George Mikan. It's like I know, <laughs> I know he was a legend or whatever, but I like Kobe right now. Like it's, it's just you can't even arrange it in your head in a way that made sense, you know. And he was always good on the mic, but he wasn't Heenan or Flair. He was a big, burly, tough-looking dude, but he wasn't Steamboat or Hogan. But when Harley Race got in the ring, you were like, oh, I get it now. Everything he did was so crisp and, and believable and perfect. Like, If there is a Harley Race botch in the universe, shut up, you liar, because it didn't happen. <laughs> I, I joked about him being a spot monkey or whatever, but you know, for someone like Harley Race, just to do the diving headbutt, that was like a stance that helped push the art form forward, you know, for the NWA champion to be doing a cool high spot in the seventies. It, you know, it, it op- I'm sure it opened up doors and made other dudes more comfortable to try stuff for a, uh, a tough man and someone who had a lot of pride in himself and his place in wrestling. He didn't mind doing the job when it made sense. He, he, he liked putting people over. He li- he didn't have to go out and have this like dominating squash match. You know, he could make a guy look good. He's He was important for the overall health of pro wrestling. I don't know. He, he put guys over. He had an eye for talent. He just got it. Uh, in, in his shoots, he kept saying that pro wrestling was the only job he had ever had. And that's the way it should have been because Harley race was born to be a pro wrestler and he's one of the best that ever did it this is going to be tough because this is a podcast and there's really not a visual element but i i think if you look at our patreon pages like in and other stuff that you may have seen with me cutting promos in the manning cave as you can see there's a lot of cyclops but there's definitely a good amount of professional wrestling here as well well, there's been different incarnations of the Man in Cave, and before we got to where we are right now, I had taken out all of my pro wrestling stuff. There was just as much pro wrestling stuff in here before that. I mean, this whole room was all professional wrestling, and then I took it all down because there was a, a, a period in my life where I was very angry, very bitter, thought my career was over, and almost had a hatred for something that I love so much even today. But there were certain things in this room I just couldn't take down when I was going through that. And uh, those things are actually the five things that are just above the window. And two of them we've referenced before in the Dynamite Kid episode. They're autographed pictures of Dynamite Kid with the with the sloppy handwriting. And I've already told that story at the end of the Dynamite Kid episode and what became of that. And then there's another picture of AJ Styles, which is an autographed picture that he signed to Mr. Elite, which is from my friend, yeah. Eddie Reistroffer, who, the only reason I keep that up there, not because of AJ Styles, but because of Aww. the person who gave it to me. <laughs> and then there's a, another picture with Dr. Steve Williams, 
that that's got a story behind it as well, which I'll get into when we do Dr. Death's episode. But then the fifth and final picture that I just couldn't take down when I was going through everything I was going through and my bitterness and my anger for professional wrestling was an autographed picture from Harley Race, which he said to Jake, a good guy, best in sports, Harley Race. And I just couldn't take that down, you know, cause I was going through and then I, I took everything else down and I got to the picture with Harley Race and I just thought about how much respect Harley Race gave to me. A man who's the most respected man and should be the most respected man in professional wrestling. He showed me equally amount of respect and how much that meant to me. And I and now I find myself very much in love with professional wrestling. And, and now you see wrestling up all over the walls and I got action figures. I've got a WrestleFest arcade game in here. VHS DVDs. VHS, all kinds of professional wrestling stuff. That, 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 and the way I feel about professional wrestling, I've got a wall calendar full of professional wrestling dates and, and I'm back in it. I'm back all the way in it. And I got to feel that almost symbolically that signed picture by Harley Race is like the roots. Like I could, I chopped the tree down. I, I trimmed the, the, all the branches off the bush and, and thought this tree was just going to die. But the roots of respect that Harley Race gave to me was the thing that kept that, that tree of, of love that I have for professional wrestling was the thing that able to make it grow and was the thing that was able to make me it's because of the respect that he showed me and and just coming in here and trying to move past professional wrestling and then seeing that and realizing there are good things and there are things to remember and if I if I was just good enough one time to get the respect from Harley Race I can be that good again some way somehow so everything that I have Definitely a small credit to Harley Race. And that, that signed picture of that he gave me um, will always be a constant reminder of that. And that's just probably one of my most cherished belongings in my entire house and in my entire life. That's how I feel about Harley Race. All right. That is our two-part series on the great Harley Race. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what we do over here at 10 bell pot leave us a rating and a review you can head over to patreon.com slash 10 bell pod where we have some cool tiers find us at 10 bell pod on all the social medias you can follow jake manning at manscout manning micah at j trotter 27 and i am n-i-c-k-o-h-l-e-s-s-a on the social medias i told that motherfucker hit stop on this podcast hi this is the phenomenal J.A. Styles, and if you think the earth is flat you should see the boys of 10 bell pods bank account so you head on over to patreon.com slash 10 bell pod where you can phenomenally phenomenally donate to the podcast, Tambell Pod.